The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This hour of the Costa Report is brought to you by Dole Food Company, the world's leading producer and distributor of fresh fruits and vegetables. Welcome to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and thank you for joining me for another two hours of Straight Talk Radio. Let me start the program today by thanking listeners who responded to our interview with William Shatner. If you missed that interview, you can listen to it at RebeccaCosta.com and also on on, uh, Apple iTunes. That's it. Uh, I think you'll hear a side of Shatner that you have not heard before. And I want to take a moment to thank him for stopping by the program on the heels of the Academy Awards. Today, we're switching gears and we're going to see if we can get to the bottom of the growing threat to America from terrorist organizations in the Middle East and North Africa, and we might even have a little time left over to talk to about our neighbors to the south and why we can't afford to take our eyes off of violent cartels in Mexico. Our guest today is terrorism and security expert Brian Michael Jenkins. And now a little about Jenkins. He was born in Chicago and enlisted in the United States Army when he was only 19 years old. Jenkins was commissioned in the infantry and became a paratrooper and captain in the Green Berets. He served in the 7th Special Forces Unit in the Dominican Republic as well as the 5th Special Forces Unit in Vietnam. Later in that war, as a civilian, Jenkins joined the Long Range Planning Task Group, which advised General Abrams, Commander of Military Operations in Vietnam. Jenkins is the recipient of the Army's highest award for civilian service. In 1996, he was appointed by President Clinton to the White House Commission on Aviation Safety and Security. Then in 1999, Jenkins became an advisor to the National Commission on Terrorism, and in 2000 was appointed to the U.S. Comptroller General advisory board. He has advised the U.S. State Department, the Department of Defense, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and just about every organization concerned with domestic and international security. I also want to add that Jenkins is a prolific writer, authoring numerous articles and studies on terrorism, and also several books, most notably his watershed book titled, Will Terrorists Go Nuclear? Today, Mr. Jenkins is a senior advisor to the RAND Corporation and director of the Mineta Transportation Institute Security Center. It's my great pleasure to welcome to the program one of our nation's foremost experts on terrorism, Mr. Brian Michael Jenkins. Welcome to the program, Mr. Jenkins. Thank you very much, Rebecca. From the attack in Benghazi to the recent tragedy in Algeria, in your view, should we be concerned that the threat to Americans is growing in the Middle East and North Africa? It's difficult to say that it's growing. Um, It is always evolving. I mean, the al-Qaeda that we confront today is very, very different from the al-Qaeda that we confronted uh, on September uh, 11th, uh, 2001. Uh, Today's al-Qaeda is much more 
decentralized, much more dependent on its affiliates and its allies, uh, more dependent on its ability to radicalize and recruit young men to carry out acts of violence in, in their own countries. So the, the, the threat continues. At the same time, undeniably, as, as a consequence of pounding on uh, particularly Al-Qaeda Central, we have diminished uh, that portion of Al-Qaeda's operational capabilities. Uh, so it's different. Now, what we see taking place in, in North Africa and the Middle East is really Al-Qaeda attempting to exploit, and, and it's always opportunistic, uh, Al-Qaeda attempting to exploit the turmoil that has been created by the Arab uprisings in Egypt, Tunisia, uh, the overthrow of Gaddafi in Libya, uh, and of course the civil war in, um, in, in, in Syria. Uh, Al-Qaeda is trying to insinuate itself into these contests, these local contests, which have been exacerbated in countries across the Sahara, across the Sahel, um, and gain a foothold to ultimately create another Afghanistan. They're not there yet, uh, but if we were to completely ignore it, uh, it is possible that they could establish themselves on a new continent. Well, now, in reading some of the studies that you've put together, and there are numerous uh, articles that you've written, um, you've described Al-Qaeda's philosophy as sort of a do-what-you-can, almost an ad hoc way of operating, where each individual is supposed to come up with their own plan and then try to execute, which is why you claim there's been so much incompetence, such as folks trying to you know, create bombs and, and launch them on their own. Well, this is, this is a fundamental change for them. I mean, Al-Qaeda Central, its leadership, would still love to bring about the spectacular attack against the United States. They are still theoretically uh, committed to that. And, and we see either Al-Qaeda Central or um, its affiliates, most notably Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, which is based in, in Yemen, uh, going after that, that spectacular shot to, for example, sabotage an airline, bring down an airliner over the United States, which could uh, kill hundreds at least, and depending on where the, airline, uh, the airliner crashes, could potentially kill far more. They're, they're still going for that, but at the same time, uh, the reality of the environment, their operational environment, which is a lot more hostile to them than it was uh, 11, 12 years ago, has forced them also to embrace this new do-it-yourself strategy. Mm -hmm. uh, in the pre-9-11 days, of course, volunteers uh, were invited to join them in the training camps in Afghanistan. Uh, the hundreds, the thousands who went through these training camps provided a continuing talent show for Al-Qaeda's operational planners. They can't do that so e easily now. So instead, they have shifted uh, their strategy to embrace the idea of a do-it-yourself terrorism. Mm -hmm. Don't try to get to us. That's too difficult. Instead, think of what you can do where you are. Now, right. fortunately, that is, they've, they've conducted an intensive advertising campaign online to promote that, mm -hmm. but they're not selling a lot of cars. 
Yeah, I, 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 you make that point as well. They haven't been that successful at recruitment. But you have forwarded the idea that al-Qaeda's fate may well lie in the hands of the Taliban. If they regain political power in Afghanistan, al-Qaeda will likely use the country as a sanctuary again. And so from your vantage point, I have a question about how does Pakistan factor into the Taliban's ambitions in Afghanistan and the future threat that al-Qaeda will replant itself there? It's 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 a very complicated uh, business. The fact is that uh, the United States has made a decision to leave Afghanistan. This this has become America's longest war. Uh, people are weary of the fighting. The costs are tremendous. The costs not just in 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 treasure, but in human lives. Uh, you know, those who are killed, those who are wounded and left disabled by this. So America has decided it is it is getting out. And we are in the process now of, in a sense, reducing re- reducing our political investment. But what happens next is a real question. Um, will the Afghan national forces be able to hold things together uh, as we reduce our presence? Uh, these forces already show signs of strain. They... They fight when they're alongside American units or other foreign units on their own. They don't do as well. Mm-hmm. The, the, the desertion rate is extremely high. Um, absent uh, a, a, an American presence, an American high level of support, it is entirely possible that we could see uh, much of the Afghan national forces dissolve. We could see the country descend into civil war. Um we can potentially look at this. The Afghans themselves can say the Americans are leading. We have to make our own calculations. The Taliban look at this. They're making their own calculations. The Pakistanis, uh, to whom we have provided billions of dollars in aid over the last 10 years, are looking at this and saying the Americans are getting up. We make our own calculations. Mm -hmm. Well, on that note, we have to take a short commercial break. When we come back, I'd like to talk to you about some statements you've made that we may need to face the fact that the United States may need a plan for for leaving some troops in Afghanistan indefinitely. You're listening to the Costa Report. This Legal Minute is brought to you by Nolan, Hammerley, Etienne, and Haas. Experienced attorneys providing professional legal services to the Central Coast for 85 years. Hello, this is attorney Stephen Wagner with your Legal Minute. Have you ever said to yourself, there ought to be a law for that? Well, often there is. In today's segment, I will address the issue of distracted driving, and here's my opening salvo. Smartphones make dumb drivers. Of course, I'm talking about all those other drivers. The laws vary from state to state, but there is one common thread. These laws were legislatively put on the books because of the outcry of concern over drivers who are texting, talking, emailing, and tweeting. Distracted driving is nothing new. We used to look at the cows and pastures. Now we take photos with our smartphones. In California, there are over 20 million licensed drivers. 20 million. Here's a scary thought. Just think about how many of those 20 million own and use cell or smartphones. I can't possibly cover all the laws in all the states, but I can say that the trend is to prohibit or sharply curtail some uses of smartphones while driving. 
Whether this leads to a new species of liability remains to be seen, but one thing is clear. With each new feature and amazing breakthrough in technology comes a new and tempting distraction. As new laws go into effect, it will be interesting to see how this impacts the law of negligence. I predict that these new laws will expand the application of important negligence concepts such as duty, breach, and causation, thereby creating more liability theories. While we marvel at the great advances in technology and the cool things that our smartphones can do, they just keep on getting smarter. But do we? This is Stephen Wagner, and that's your Legal Minute. Brought to you by Nolan, Hammerley, Etienne, and Haas. Selected in 2013 as one of the top law firms in the United States by Martindale Hubble. Hi, I'm Andy, the produce manager at Ben Lomond Market. This week, we are featuring large Washington Fuji apples, 87 cents a pound, large California naval oranges, 69 cents a pound, and California head lettuce. 97 cents each. From Mexico, we have large green bell peppers, 99 cents a pound, and blackberries, two packages for $3. The first of the local grown asparagus has arrived, and we are featuring it at $2.69 a pound. It's time to start enjoying fresh-picked asparagus. In organics, we are featuring broccoli, $1.59 a pound, and Fuji apples, $1.29 a pound. We have many other specials, including Brussels sprouts, $1.69 a pound, cauliflower, $2.49 each, and California tangillos, $0.99 cents a pound. So come, check out our great selection of fresh produce at Ben Loman Market. Hello, Bill Teisling here for the Santa Cruz Area Chamber of Commerce with an invitation for you to join us Wednesday, March 13th for the 24th Annual Santa Cruz Business Fair at the Coconut Grove Ballroom on Beach Street in Santa Cruz. This year, we're playing ball in the new economy, and our game is shaping up to be a winner with over 100 booths and tables exhibiting the best of Santa Cruz business. Get in on the fun and hear some good news about new businesses and old. Get in on the food and drink and lots of it as the Santa Cruz area restaurants, breweries, and wineries offer up some of their best to tantalize your taste buds. Meet your home team, the Santa Cruz Warriors, and get raffle tickets for lots of great prizes from the Derby Girls on Wheels. What fun! Above all, get in on all the people you'd like to meet at the place and time you'd like to meet them, Wednesday the 13th, between 4 and 7 p.m. at the Coconut Grove Ballroom on Beach Street for the 24th Annual Santa Cruz Business Fair and get some game. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is terrorism and security expert Brian Michael Jenkins. And before the break, we were talking about the fact that if the United States pulls out all of our forces out of Afghanistan too early, the Taliban may well gain control of the politics there, and in so doing, create an opportunity for Al Qaeda to reestablish a sanctuary there. Um, is that is that pretty much what we're facing? I think certainly that's a realistic risk. Uh, the fact is the war is essentially stalemated. Uh, the level of uh, fighting has intensified uh, over the years. Um, the U.S. declared strategy now is one of transition, that is transitioning the combat responsibilities to the Afghan national forces and withdrawn. We expect to be out by uh, 2014. Now, the risks that come with that, as I mentioned previously, is that um, without 
a continued American presence, and certainly without a considerable uh, U.S. financial support, uh, something probably in the area of 10 to $20 billion a year, um, the Afghan forces will begin to come apart uh, through through desertions, uh, through the internal centrifugal forces that exist within the country. Um, it is not clear um, that the Taliban will go along with any negotiated settlement. You have to ask the question, why would they? They, mm-hmm. they know that we're leaving. Um, uh, they essentially could just wait us out. And you have to understand here, uh, perceptions of time are much different for our adversaries than they are for ourselves. We regard war in the West as a finite undertaking. We date our wars precisely. World War II began on on December 7th, 1941, and it ended with the capitulation of Japan in 1945. Our adversaries don't think that way. I mean, Al-Qaeda, for its part, it, it, it states that this clash of swords, they, they, they use this poetic language, began centuries ago and will continue until Judgment Day. There are young Afghan uh, uh, teenagers who can tell you the story of Afghanistan, uh, Afghan victories over British invading armies in 1840. Uh, when, you, when you're dealing with people that have concepts of time like that, they have no need for timetables. They are not pushed by uh, domestic constituencies. The only calculation they make is would they achieve their goals faster by cutting some kind of a political deal with us or um, will they be better off simply waiting for us to, to depart but knowing that our departure does not mean the end of uh, military action, at least insofar as it applies to uh, al-Qaeda and, and other sources of a terrorist threat. Well, um, that, that brings up a good point. I, I think you make an important point here that as far as uh, waging a conflict, uh, the timetables that the Middle Eastern terrorist group have stretch out over thousands and thousands of years. Whereas we think like good business people, we want to go in, make an investment, put the threat down and then get out. Um, and so we have a very, very uh, short timetable in our minds. Now, recently, you made the suggestion that the United States needs a plan for reducing U.S. forces in Afghanistan to a level that can be sustained, perhaps indefinitely. And you seem to suggest that rather than having this going into these situations with a large military force um, all the time, that it that it's better to use smaller special forces units to put these threats down as they come out. Uh, as they uh, crop up. Can you talk about that for a moment? Well, I, I, I certainly did make that proposal. I, I made that proposal actually in 2009 while we were debating the issue of whether to build up uh, forces in Afghanistan. And while I thought that some immediate buildup uh, short term was, was probably inevitable simply to arrest a rapidly deteriorating situation, mm-hmm. 
that going up to the numbers that we ultimately put into the country, 100,000 American troops, uh, that guaranteed that it was unsustainable uh, and that the only way we could we could make it through uh, this was by uh, sharply reducing uh, the American footprint, the American presence. Uh, Americans are simply not good at protracted conflicts. Um, we are, as you correctly point out, we're, we're, we're a Bentamite nation. We're a nation of pragmatists. Mm-hmm. We look at these efforts as investments and want to know what the return on our investment is. Absolutely. Uh, and, the, and these things rarely turn out to be, you know, great in, in investments. I'm not quite sure that that switching over to a much smaller special forces strategy will succeed now, uh, more than three years later, mm-hmm. um, while I think it would have succeeded earlier. The, the, the situation has evolved considerably since then. It well, certainly is- when we knew where Osama bin Laden was, we relied on special forces units to go in secretly without letting our ally Pakistan know, go in and take Osama bin Laden out. Um, and so we have had such high success when we go to smaller, highly trained, nimble groups. Well, let, let, let's keep in mind, and speaking as uh, an, an old special forces soldier. Absolutely. There are two dimensions of special forces. One are, are, are the splendidly trained um, special forces uh, units that carry out the, the raids, the precise operations, as you mentioned, the, the, the killing of Osama bin Laden. Um, those are referred to sometimes uh, 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 in the Army as the door kickers. Mm-hmm. The others are those who are trained to be knowledgeable about an area, often trained to have the linguistic capabilities. In many cases, uh, may even be recruited um, from various countries because we are a, a very diverse country ourselves and who do the, the long-term, low-level, hardly above the, the horizon work of working with indigenous units to create counter-guerrilla forces or guerrilla forces that are able to operate much like, you know, much like we see the movies about the underground in World War II or resistance movements, things of that sort. Um, it's a different kind of a thing. Now, both of those um, are, are utilized in our continuing efforts against, uh, against Al-Qaeda. Mm-hmm. I think Unfortunately, biggest- I have to interrupt you. We have to take another commercial break, but when we come back, I'd okay. like you to pick up at that point. You're listening to the Costa Report.
I'm here today with Scott Caraccioli of Caraccioli Sellers. Hi, Scott. How you doing? I'm doing well, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. So I've got a question for you. What's the first impression a person has when they walk into the Caraccioli tasting room? You know, it's initially always the decor. And then it's one of those things where you sit down and you realize the wine's good too. So it becomes a complete experience. You get to experience not only the uh, great surroundings in the warm environment, but also some great wines for your palate. It's one of my favorite places to go in downtown Carmel. And I hope everyone listening to us today will take a moment to stop in because I think that they would really enjoy the experience that you've created. Well, thank you. And please do. We'd love to have you. We're open seven days a week. It's right on Dolores between Ocean and 7th and Carmel. Thank you for being with us again, Scott. Thank you, Rebecca. Chamonix has great and wonderful products, and they wanted me to personally introduce you to their new Provia. Your million-dollar look can't be perfect if you have thinning, weak, and tired hair. Thinning hair could be a result of aging follicles. The new Provia from Chamonix strengthens your hair follicles to give you stronger, fuller, more vibrant hair like nothing you've tried before, and it works for both men and women. You've suffered with thinning hair for years. Well, now you can join the thousands who are using the scientific breakthrough from Chamonix and see the amazing results for yourself. Provia Serum is all natural with no side effects and it's very easy to use and it's simple. You get compliments everywhere you go or your money back. Call 800-525-6912. Order Provia now and get a free month's supply with your order. Say goodbye to hair in the sink and in the shower and start enjoying fuller, thicker hair the natural way. Order Provia risk-free now and get a free month's supply with an order. Nothing to lose and a whole lot of beautiful hair to gain. Call 800-525-6912. One, two. This Sunday on Eat, Drink, Explore Radio, we welcome back the owner of Drake's Bay Oyster Company. Now that a judge has ruled, he can stay open during his legal fight with the Department of the Interior. Also, the science of gluten-free baking and California's upcoming water situation. Get the latest food, beverage, and travel news Sunday mornings 8 to 10 live right here on KSCO AM 1080. Eat, Drink, Explore Radio, your lifestyle information source. Hi everyone, it's MZ, proud to finally be on track to optimal health. You see, I recently spent a week hosting Doc Wallach at my home for the big Super Health Sunday that we put on. This event was an enormous success. This man of 73 looks and acts at least 20 years younger, and it's all because he practices what he preaches. Nothing stops Doc from taking his supplements multiple times a day. Well, it finally rubbed off on me. I'm taking the Healthy Start Pack from Longevity twice a day now. I'm feeling much much better and I've already lost eight pounds in less than two weeks. My cravings for junk food are gone and I'm actually starting to look a lot better too. I know that's not saying much. We set up a new website, kscohealth.com, and I invite you to visit it and become a customer for the Healthy Start Pack and other wonderful Longevity Health products that really work. Support and promote your own good health while you support our KSCO independent operation. Go to kscohealth.com. That's kscohealth.com and start up. We live in the age of mobile devices. They keep us in touch and informed. They help us work and play. And they all use rechargeable batteries. But these batteries aren't just rechargeable, they're recyclable. And more than 50,000 free drop-off locations across North America make it easy and convenient. We all enjoy the freedom that mobile technology gives us. Let's accept the responsibility to pass that freedom on. Find out how you can answer the call to recycle. Visit calltorecycle.org.
Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest is terrorist and security expert, Mr. Brian Michael Jenkins. And before the break, um, you were making a point, and I want to give you an opportunity to finish that thought. No, I was simply saying that, you know, we have these two two um, diverse missions that, that fall under the realm of, of, of special forces or, or special operations. Mm-hmm. One is a low-level long-term highly specialized commitment and 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 the other is is punctuated by these daring dramatic uh individual missions now mm-hmm. you know the the people who who go into abbottabad are not concerned with developing a constituency and recruiting a local force in pakistan they are in and out uh the other type of special forces mission, which which could be deployed in in Africa or Middle East, or it was deployed in Southeast Asia and Latin America, is one that is concerned more about gradually creating a local, low-level capability. I don't mean something that looks like a miniature version of the United States Army with tanks and artillery. I'm talking about something uh, quite different. Uh, but is able to stay there for long periods of time. Mm-hmm. Um, those are different types of missions. And, and, and how, uh, how has that idea been embraced? Um, <clears throat> first of all, uh, when, when Americans view war, um, we view it as a, as a prize fight between heavyweight boxers. Mm-hmm. And that is who can get in there and throw the biggest punches uh, the fastest to go for a knockout in the second round. That's the American preferred style of warfare. Um, When instead the war itself begins to look like running a marathon or an ultra-marathon, Americans and American military leadership is not particularly attracted to that type of uh, that type of conflict. Um, it's but you know, I, I don't think I would just limit that to war itself. I don't think we're very good at doing any kind of sustained effort. I mean, we certainly proved that down after uh, Hurricane Katrina. I mean, we 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 had a Red Cross that was prepared to go in and then get out. And they really didn't have the infrastructure to stay there for the two and three years that they had shelters open for that long. This is perhaps you know a basic uh, a basic flaw in our our in, in just exceedingly pragmatic approach to things that we want to. We believe in progress. We believe if there's a problem, you can solve it, <clears throat> and you solve it once, fix it up, move on to the next problem. Uh, that's not the way the world works. And therefore, our preferences uh, are often out of sync with realities. I mean, look, uh, President Obama, in his second inaugural address, Mm -hmm. said that a decade of war is coming to an end. And, And he won applause for saying it and certainly reflected the sentiments of, of, of the American public in, in, in talking about American troops are coming home, and that's a good thing. At the same time, however, we are talking about building a new drone base in Africa. 
we have expanded our efforts in Yemen. Mm-hmm. We are being placed under pressure, including from our, our own Congress, to intervene more actively in Mali, across the Sahel, and Sahara in Africa, to intervene more actively uh, in Syria. Well, now, Mr. Uh, Jenkins, that doesn't sound like a decade of war that. coming to an end. That You've got it right. Um, and and you know as long as we're on the point like here because coming to an end right as long as we're on this point because this is something I wanted to ask you about uh, Middle East policy policy advisor under five presidents Dennis Ross he was kind enough to join me here and he's publicly stated that uh, if R- Iran continues the current pace of its nuclear program uh, which is very likely uh, that the Obama administration will strike Iran's enrichment facilities before the end of the year and and in fact uh, um, James Jeff also agrees, and he predicts it'll happen by this summer. Uh, so, you know, to your point, this doesn't sound like the end of a decade of war. No, I don't think it, it, it is the end of a decade of war. I think what, what is happening is that war is actually being redefined, and what we're entering into is an era of perpetual warfare. That is war without end. Now, the the locus of the uh, of the conflicts may change from Afghanistan to uh, North Africa to the Middle East uh, to elsewhere, but the fact of conflict will 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 remain. Well, you know, I want to um, be sure this point is made to listeners today. I think what you're saying is we will always be at war. That we may have to face the reality that there will never be a time that we will not be at war. And that it's the definition of what that war entails. Is it going to be a war of drones and and fewer humans? Is it going to be special forces units that are trained to stay in an area for a long period of time? Uh, You know, we, we have to just redefine how we're going to handle perpetual war. Isn't that what you're saying? I am. I, Ed, the, the, the country is not philosophically prepared to accept that. I mean, that is, um, many in this country would, would reject that, saying we have no business being involved in all of these places, and if we are going to take that as our mission, it is an imperial mission, and it condemns us to pet- perpetual war. Uh, others say... That is the reality of today's world. Um, It is not by uh, our choice alone, our decision alone, that these threats will suddenly go away if if we decide not to do anything at all. And I don't know what we will do uh, with regard to Iran by this summer or by the end of this year. But it is not... Well, you've certainly explored in your book about whether the Middle East, you know, will uh, eventually have nuclear arms. And I know a few years ago you didn't feel that it was a threat. Do you feel that it's a threat now? I, I, the, the book really called into question whether or not uh, terrorist groups like al-Qaeda mm-hmm. would have nuclear weapons. And well, let's talk about that, Iran. Uh, is is Iran's nuclear program a real threat, or is it just our, 
you know, our conditioning of being afraid of the word nuclear, because I think you point that out in your book, is that anybody uses the word nuclear and we go, we go nuclear, right? Uh, so, you know, is Iran really a threat? Do we need to take out their enrichment facilities? Would you be in favor of that? Because General McCaffrey was here just a couple of weeks ago and he says that there's probably 140 targets we would have to hit, which means we have to clear airspace uh, to go in and be able to do that. It is a daunting mission. And in addition to that, we can be pretty clear that Iran would shut down the Persian Gulf, and, and then we'd really be into it. Uh, General McCaffrey is a very wise old soldier and, and uh, uh, certainly offers what I think is, is a realistic assessment. Uh, it's, one, easy to say that we have to do something, we have to go to war. Going to war with Iran... Uh, is it is a daunting task in terms of the number of targets that we would have to deal with um this would be a major military undertaking it would have uh, enormous adverse consequences in the region and beyond it would subject us here in the united states to a significantly increased terrorist threat and we have to ask ourselves the day after we, we, we begin this invasion. I mean, the Iranians aren't damn fools uh, about this. I suspect they have some kind of a backup or plan B. Well, I think you're I think you're United absolutely States. right about that. And I want to talk about that backup plan B because I believe it involves North Korea. So when we come back, we'll talk about that. You're listening to the Costa Report. Are you looking for fresh, creative, and healthy ideas to bring to your table? Hi, I'm Amy Tobin, a cookbook author and culinary expert. Dole makes it easy to eat the right foods with their wide selection of salad blends and all-natural salad kits. Whether it's Sunday night family dinner or a lunchtime indulgent with your favorite salad ingredients, let your culinary imagination soar with more than 30 varieties of salad blends that range from sweet and subtle to zesty and bold. For the ultimate in fresh convenience, try Dole's all-inclusive salad kits with farm-fresh lettuces, crunchy vegetables, and all-natural Dole specialty dressings and toppings. To learn more about Dole salads and for inspiring recipe ideas, visit dole.com slash salads or like Dole Salad Guide on Facebook. With so many delicious and convenient choices, it's easy to find nutritious inspiration with Dole salads. If you listen to talk shows in the news today, you might come away with the impression that the root of all our problems are politics or economics. The right blames the left, the left blames the right, and everyone blames the Chinese. But take a hard look at where the blame game has gotten us. That's why I'm asking you to pick up a copy of The Watchman's Rattle. It's available in paperback and as an ebook too. And if you don't have time to read, there's an audio version so you can listen in your car or even on the beach. The book explains why complexity produces gridlock and what we have to do to start moving forward again. So pick up a copy of The Watchman's Rattle at a bookstore near you or online retailer. Do it today.
For the last 60 years, Coast Paper and Supply has been serving locals and businesses for all their cleaning and paper supply needs. With an 1,800-square-foot showroom and nearly 5,000 products, you'll find everything you're looking for in the way of janitorial supplies, retail and industrial packaging, and disposable food service products for business or home. Not to mention their huge selection of boxes and shipping supplies. Their family-owned and operated business is located at 151 Josephine on River Street in Santa Cruz. Call 831-423-3350 or visit Coast Paper Supply inc.com a proud member of think local first well i'm sure you must have heard this again and again what would you get if you combined the great taste of that breakfast drink tang along with 187 different vitamins minerals antioxidants enzymes added in the healing properties of green tea flowerpowerdrink.com let me share with you a new tasty treat idea Take one packet of Polybur's energy drink and pour it into a hot cup of water. That's right, a hot cup. Mmm, tastes delicious, especially in these cold, chilly days. Or instead of a cup of coffee or tea. Flowerpowerdrink.com Long-term sustained energy without the jitters. It helped people lose weight and gave more cellular nutrition than the best multivitamin known to man. Flowerpowerdrink.com The natural energy drink polymers. Try it, you'll like it. Flowerpowerdrink.com Michael Olson's second law of the food chain. The farther we go from the source of our food, the less control we have over what's in our food. Now that so much of our food comes from thousands of miles away, we should all get together Saturday at 9 a.m. as the Food Chain Radio Show tracks down who is putting what in our food. If you have a comment about the second law of the food chain, tell me. Michael Olson, all about it at MetroFarm.com. Now, see you all on KSEO Saturday at 9 a.m. for some What's Eating Grunt Radio on the Food Chain. What day was that? Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is terrorism expert Brian Michael Jenkins. And before the break, we were talking about whether the United States would strike Iran's nuclear facilities. And you mentioned that it's probable that Iran has a plan B should this occur. So in truth, doesn't Iran have two paths to nuclear arms? I mean, they can either try to make them themselves or they can buy them from North Korea. Iran has been a weapons customer of North Korea since the early 80s. So even if we take out their nuclear program, aren't we just driving Iran into the hands of the North Koreans? I mean, isn't the North Korean nuclear program so much more advanced that in a way it's even more convenient for uh, Iran? Well, you you raise an interesting point here, and that is, are we beginning to see um, the, the, how should I say it, the commercialization of, of, of nuclear weapons? That is, the traditional route of acquisition was a nation sets up its own its own mini Manhattan project, um, enriches uranium, learns how to put a weapon together, experiments, and ultimately puts a puts a weapon together, uh, possibly with technical help from another nation. So the Chinese may have had technical help from the Russians, the North Koreans had technical help from the Chinese, um, and so on. Uh, But we're coming into an area now where it is entirely conceivable that nations will acquire nuclear weapons or the components of nuclear weapons, the know-how, the fissile material, uh, the other uh, ingredients, uh, through outsourcing. 
and and that is they 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 don't have their own Manhattan project, so to speak. They they acquire things like our big corporations uh, do manufacturing. A piece of it is comes from here. A piece of it is made there, and at some point, the whole thing is put together. You're absolutely right. I, I mean, every company faces a decision to make or buy. And, and at some point, countries will face that, too. Do we make or do we buy? So if that's the case, taking out Iran's nuclear enrichment facilities will do very little. All it does is create a customer for North Korea, doesn't it? Well, it depends on what taking out means. First of all, it, it's almost unimaginable to think of removing Iran's nuclear capability without bringing about regime change in Iran. Mm -hmm. That that would be, to me, almost inconceivable. How do we carry out a continuing major military operation against a country that is going to fight back uh, conventionally and unconventionally with terrorist attacks, um, causing us continuing difficulties in any country where we are located, and say, well, we're going to just simply tolerate that until we can take out the last, in you know, the last aluminum tube that's enriching uranium. Mm-hmm. Well, according to Dennis Ross, you know, he makes the point that Iran's economy looks a lot like the uh, Soviet Union's economy, you know, during the Cold War, uh, just prior to their collapse, and that keeping economic pressure on the country will prevent them from having the money or the resources to be able to rebuild these nuclear facilities. So if you keep ta- periodically taking them out, and they keep trying to rebuild them, and you and you really devastate the economy, Eventually, they just don't have the resources or money to rebuild, and the regime change, nothing causes a regime change faster than a poor economy. Wouldn't you agree? Um, certainly, that's a possibility. Of course, that's, that becomes an argument against an immediate invasion, because the argument becomes, all right, if we can continue to squeeze them economically, that ultimately... Uh, there is so much economic difficulty that there is regime change from within, although it's... it's although not- that hasn't worked in North Korea, has it? No, it hasn't worked in North Korea, but I, was, I suppose two years ago people would say it would be unimaginable in a, in, in a tyranny like Syria. And mm-hmm. you see what's happening in Syria now. Um, so I, you know, I'm, first of all, I'm not recognizing the field of prophecy, so I, I'm, I'm cautious about uh, saying exactly what's going to happen. When I say a plan B, though, um, I'm not thinking about something even the long term. I'm thinking about uh, some type of, you know, doomsday plan that says if, in fact, we are being attacked by the Americans mm-hmm. or by the Americans along with the Israelis, this, in fact, is existential for us. It is existential. And therefore, if we are going to go down, because we cannot in the long term resist the material military superiority of the United States, or the United States and Israel, then um, we're going to have something in place that will allow us revenge even after the fact so well, well give give me an example like, like give a theoretical example what would that look like 
there there is a separate there's a separate nuclear capability isolated from the other parts we know about perhaps even a purchased weapon mm-hmm. or ingredients for a weapon that can be assembled and delivered to the United States or an agreement with North Korea that we don't know about or to get one and to deliver it to the United States mm-hmm. that is a That's sobering thought yeah, it's a very sobering thought. And I, you know, I, I recently wrote an editorial for USA Today regarding the danger that's associated with uh, these suicide packs. You know, once you give up the will to live and once you prepare for defeat, then the unimaginable becomes possible. And I think that's what we're talking about here is they, they, if they feel they're no match for the U.S. and Israel in an attack and they create this plan B, uh, it is, uh, you know, it's just inconceivable to us that it will go on long after the attack. For, you know, most governments uh, behave differently from individuals. So mm-hmm. we, we, we do see suicide terrorist attackers. We rarely see suicidal governments. But that's when the government has the opportunity to make rational choices. Uh, a government that, uh, a government of a country that is being invaded, that regards that invasion as an existential threat, um, how can we be sure that their assessment of the situation and the actions they take accordingly will be rational ones according to our definition of rationality? It's a it's a very good point. I, I think if they feel they have nothing to lose because they're being eradicated and if it's posed that way to their citizenry, uh, I'm sure that... Uh, that there will be some very serious consequences here in the United States. So many people are, you know, are very worried about that. I noticed that recently that Korea is getting all the attention. We keep, we, we ping pong back and forth, don't we, between Iran's threat and North Korea's threat and then Iran's threat. To me, it seems like all North Korea is doing is just doing a bunch of product demonstrations to drum up some business. They may be, but I think there's something deeper going on in North Korea this time. I mean, we're we're accustomed to the bellicose rhetoric coming out of Pyongyang. Mm-hmm. Uh, that part is nothing new. But but this, uh, the most recent statements, the most recent public statements, do have a more ominous quality about them. Mm-hmm. They talk about uh, suspending the armistice. They talk about comparisons between now and 1950. Um, these these comparisons are, are are wrong by any objective assessment. But here again, we have a country that exists in its own universe. Yes. Of, of thought and, and within its own closed universe, it is entirely possible for people to make decisions that are simply not based on reality. 
Well, I I think you have really hit the nail on the head. We have leaders who are not basing decisions on empirical fact and are creating an illusion of a reality uh, for their own citizenry. And that's perhaps the most toxic uh, prelude to conflict that uh, that can occur. Well, that is our program for today. But before we say goodbye, Mr. Jenkins, let me thank you for taking time to speak with us today and also for your service to our country. Thank you, Mr. Jenkins. Thank you, and thanks for the great questions. If your station is leaving us after this first hour, you don't want to miss my next guest, Shannon Watts, the founder of One Million Moms for Gun Control, a nonprofit organization which sprung up as a response to the tragedy at Sandy Hook and which has now over 75 chapters across the country will be with us. She'll talk about the Second Amendment and banning assault weapons. Don't miss a controversial look at our right to bear arms with mother and activist Shannon Watts next week right here on your favorite weekly news program. Now stay tuned for the second hour of the Costa Report when we take your calls and find out what's on your mind this week. I'm here today with Scott Caraccioli of Caraccioli Cellars. Now, there's a number of ways you can taste wines at the tasting room. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, we currently have nine different wines on our tasting menu, and we really want it to be an experience where you get to taste the wine that you want to taste. So if you want to taste Pinot, you can really focus your flight around that. If you wanted to focus on the bubbles, we have three different sparklings that will allow you to build your flight that way. Or if you came in and you just wanted to taste one wine, we would uh, have it set up for you to be able to do that as well. Now, what's a flight? A flight is basically a combination of small tastes of different wines. If you wanted to taste all of our different Chardonnays, you could taste the 2007 Chardonnay, the 2008, and the 2009, and we would line you up with an individual taste of each of them. Thank you for being with us again, Scott. Thank you, Rebecca. Hi everyone, it's MZ, proud to finally be on track to optimal health. You see, I recently spent a week hosting Doc Wallach at my home for the big Super Health Sunday that we put on. This event was an enormous success. This man of 73 looks and acts at least 20 years younger, and it's all because he practices what he preaches. Nothing stops Doc from taking his supplements multiple times a day. Well, it finally rubbed off on me. I'm taking the Healthy Start Pack from Longevity twice a day now. I'm feeling much better and I've already lost eight pounds in less than two weeks. My cravings for junk food are gone and I'm actually starting to look a lot better too. I know that's not saying much. We set up a new website, kscohealth.com and I invite you to visit it and become a customer for the Healthy Start Pack and other wonderful Longevity Health products that really work. Support and promote your own good health while you support our KSCO independent operation. Go to kscohealth.com That's kscohealth.com and start up. From San Jose to Salinas, Red Hot News Talk, AM 1080, KSCO Santa Cruz. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. 
The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 